Welcome to episode 84 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going, man. You're looking awfully wizardy today. Yeah, I'm rocking this hoodie, and I've got the hood up, because that's just the kind of way I feel right now. Your beard is, like, it's magnificent. You look like a Southern Presbyterian at this point. <laughs> We're going to have to... We need to create a beard chart. Well, I think this has been done, right? Some kind of, like, yeah. theological beard chart that equates a certain style and, like, the beard with some kind of theological persuasion. Yeah, I think the way it works is your the longer your beard gets, the more reformed you become until you cross a certain threshold, and then you become Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, and then that's dangerous, right? That yeah. line... You've got to really pay attention to. Yeah, it's important to keep a properly trimmed beard, just like it's important to keep a properly trimmed systematic theology. I can't even touch that. (laughs) I did that That on the fly, too. That was so solid. Well, I think at some point I'm going to have to trim this up. My wife keeps saying she's fine with the beard as long as it looks on purpose. And apparently this does not look, yeah. this looks accidental. Yeah, it's looking a little accidental. A little like, uh, you need a little more like... um, I don't know what I'm looking for. A little more... Uh, like John, shape? Yeah, a little more John Knox and a little less Duck Dynasty, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I get that. We were in a crowd yesterday, and my wife pointed me out to somebody who didn't know me by saying, he's the guy that looks kind of homeless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with wizardy. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. That's very kind. Yeah. So let me kick off some affirmations and denials this week. Let's and do it. I want to affirm straight up off the top here, just pure mathematics. I was just reminded this week how much I love math. And I think what has happened for a lot of people is math is undervalued because a lot of people don't think they're good at it. And oftentimes that's because they just had a bad experience with a teacher or one particular subject. So I want to recommend a book to everybody. That's awesome. This is a book that will make you love math, I promise, and will make you praise God at the same time. It's called Here's Looking at Euclid. Clever by a guy named Alex Bellows. He actually has two books, but this is the first one he wrote. It's just all about these wonderful mathematical observations. He is deep into math, but he he talks about it in a way that will make you fall in love with it. So if you're curious at all about crazy mathematical stuff, or even if you're not, I actually challenge people to pick this book up and not enjoy it. You'll, You'll love it. You like math? I was actually having a conversation today with someone about how much I hate math. So... I don't. Right, so why do you hate math? Uh, I just, I don't know. It's just not my thing. Just I, never got into it? Yeah, it's not that I'm not good at it. I mean, I'm not great at math, but that's mostly just because I, it's not a skill that I've cultivated. I, it's just never been my thing. Like, I've just never really engaged it. I hear that. I think there's a lot of parallels with the subject of math and theology, don't you yeah. think? In terms of people approaching it like that sometimes. Yeah, yeah I could see that. I kind of feel like it's it's not my thing. I tried it, and I think it's reserved for a different type of mind or somebody who's got a different turn of mind. But this is a great book. Check out Alex Bellos. Here's looking at Euclid. It's fantastic. So how about you? You affirming something this week? I am. So I'm affirming this is a twofold affirmation. I am straight up affirming the Two Thieves podcast. So they've started this new series, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, ambitious maybe is the word, but also sort of theologically reckless in like the best way. I love that. The background story is that um, 
these guys have been studying scripture and diving into covenant theology and certain Presbyterian friends of theirs, namely me and Carrie Gephardt have been nudging them to consider some of the issues in their theology that sort of presuppositionally points them towards uh, pedobaptism. So they have decided to not only do so and investigate covenant theology and pedobaptism, all that stuff, but they're doing it like in front of the whole world for everyone to see on their show. And they're inviting guests on their show to like explain classic Presbyterian covenant theology to them um, that are Presbyterians. So it's, one of those things that I theologically reckless in the best way, because it's kind of that um, reckless in like the classic sense, like it, they're, they're sort of throwing cosh to the wind. Right. So it, they're, they're not really, they're not really trying to defend against this. They're just letting what happens happens. Um, and it's just been a really good series. And the second fork of my affirmation is I want to affirm Matt Butts who came on their show uh, to do Covenant of Works and it was awesome. It was great to, to hear and see because I looked at some of the photos, but it was great to hear Matt Butts behind the microphone again. So um, he's doing, he's killing it in law school. I know he's got lots of tests, so pray for him. Um, but he's just, he's crushing it and he just came back and it was, it's like he never missed a beat. It was pretty awesome. I love this idea that those guys are basically embarking on this grand experiment to have their theology challenged in a way that's really open and transparent. Yeah. There's something cool about being part of that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So I'm actually going to be on this show in a couple of weeks. I think Um, we're still working on some times. We're going to talk about the covenant of redemption. uh, If everything works out Deo Valente and um, it's going to be good. I'm excited. It's, it's a great show. These guys are great. They're crisp thinkers. Um, It's really encouraging to see these guys um, kind of come into their own on, on the show. So, I mean, they've been at it longer than us, but they're, they're just doing a really good job over there. For sure. So what are you denying today? So my wife and I have this opportunity or this privilege to serve as part of an advisory committee for a nonprofit that works to basically share information about distracted driving. And the nonprofit was started by a woman whose daughter two years ago was killed by a distracted driver. So this denial is really about distracted driving, but how I see in distracted driving our entirely sinfulness, our full depravity, both our ability to be tempted and our stubbornness when we're confronted with temptation. And here's a prime example. So through this this organization, I became aware of something called cell slips. Are you familiar with these? I have not heard of them. So a company is now manufacturing like a little pouch where you can slip your phone into and embedded in the pouch is all this material that prevents the cell phone from actually receiving any kind of signal. Oh, right, right, right. So you just kind of throw that in your car or you, you know, put it on your side when, so that you're not tempted by instructions. Of course, as soon as you remove the phone, any message you received while it was in the pouch are going to be automatically downloaded, all that good stuff. And I was like, well, that's a great idea. Like, that's interesting. And then it occurred to me, we need this product. And this has got like a lot of rave reviews. We need yeah. this product because we can't just turn off our phones yeah. when we're in the car. Like, it seems like the, the silly but the simple solution is just turn it off. But we're attempted and distracted people. And I, I get some people will say, well, I'd rather have it on and available to me so I can just whip it out real quick as opposed to shutting down and starting it back up. But yeah, honestly, this is really a solution for a problem that we've created ourselves oh, because absolutely. we just don't have control. Yeah. So I'm just denying lack of self-control. And this, I just saw manifested in distracted driving. And seriously, everybody do not text and drive. Just... I, it's such a horrible thing for something so silly and stupid. Do yeah. not text and drive. Yeah. You know, I thought, 
um, if I was a person who had the wherewithal and the knowledge and the money to prototype this, what'd be really cool would be to build into cars like a little socket that your phone has to go into and it disables your phone. And if your phone is not in there, like you sync your phone with it, like with Bluetooth or whatever, or you, I suppose you could probably just do it through Bluetooth now that I'm thinking about it. Um, when it syncs to the Bluetooth on the car, it disables the phone. Right. And so when you get in the phone, in the car, it actually does that. And if you pick up your phone and try to turn it on, it like warns you and then shuts the car off. Like you can't start the car unless the phone is in a certain state, like airplane mode, basically. And I have like, that would be a really easy way for like car manufacturers to solve the problem. But you know what? They won't do it because people won't buy that car. Exactly. So you're, you're exactly right. It's all about like our selfishness and our like, our need for instant gratification. Right. It is really ironic to me that no matter what solution you put forth, it's still predicated on the person actually subscribing to it Mm -hmm. and wanting to take the first step to actually be safe. And that's something that we just feel like we're really good multitaskers or we can handle driving exceptionally well. You know, like it's funny, like when you're in a room and somebody says like, raise your hand if you think you're an average driver and everybody's hand goes up, which is like a statistical impossibility. Math, people. See, there's (laughs) math again. So- Anyway, that's that's my denial. How about you? What are you denying today? So I'm denying Sabellianism. So we are we embarking go. on a new series on the Reformed Brotherhood, uh, which may feel like an old series since we do this pretty much like every other episode anyways. But we're going to take uh, the third, third, second, one of the Sundays a month, and we're going to talk about uh, a heresy. So we're going to start with some of the classic kind of early church heresies. We may uh, talk about some of the more modern heresies when we get there. But this week we're going to talk about Sabellianism. And I won't, I won't ruin the rest of the show by front-loading it too much. But man, this is a destructive, destructive heresy. For sure. It really, really is. And the problem is that uh, it sort of appeals to like our default mode of thinking in a way. And so it, it's, it sort of creeps in in ways that we don't expect and it sort of rears its ugly head. Um, or if you're William, William Lane Craig, it's, it's three ugly heads uh, all at one time <laughs> oh. at, in ways we don't anticipate. It kind of comes out of nowhere um, and it right. takes us by surprise. So I'm denying that for at least the next 50 minutes or so. Don't you think it's unfortunate that for all these heresies that are so dangerous and destructive, they have pretty awesome names. Like mm-hmm. that's just a fun name to say. Yeah, I think it's probably just because people had cooler names back then. I think that's probably it. But you're right. We've talked about this for a little while. We wanted to kind of have these ongoing conversations about heresy because their prevalence in our society, and I think more so they're prevalent in really subtle ways. Yeah. And like we spoke about before, heresy often doesn't mean like a straight out repudiation of the Bible. Most heresy begins with a distortion of the truth, not the outright denial of it. Right. So we wanted to get a conversation going about the great heresies of our age and those that were prominent in church history. And I like something that, when I was thinking about this, something that Alistair McGrath has called basically heresy as a failed attempt at orthodoxy. So we're not trying to put like people on blast per se, except when it's appropriate, but to really give out this clarion call or this warning call that heresy is an attempt to make sense of a Bible that fails to take into account the full richness of biblical revelation. And we're all susceptible to that. So I think it's good for us to just kind of talk through some of what's already gone 
behind us so that as we move forward, even in like our own minds, as we're having conversations and interpreting the scriptures, we're not likely to fall off the path one side or the other, other because... To me, the Bible's teaching is basically like this road with deep ditches on either side. And we're going to fall into either ditch unless we hold to the teaching of the scriptures in all of that teaching. So I think this is just a great exercise in talking about bad thinking so that we can get to good thinking. Yeah, and I like that you use the analogy of a road because I think sometimes um, maybe we don't have a tendency to think this way, but we have a tendency to act this way as though like heresy is this knife edge. Right. Orthodoxy is this knife edge and you have to walk like a, you know, like an Olympic gymnast on a balance beam. And if you like misstep one, like a centimeter on either side, you're going to fall off into heresy. But in actuality, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the creeds when we get there. We we probably won't tonight because the, the creeds don't really play into this controversy as much. But the, the fact is that orthodoxy is a, is a road. It's a path that we walk. And there's some room for flexibility within that path. So it's not as though like there's only one middle ground and one articulation of the truth of the Bible that constitutes orthodoxy. Um, And that's not because we're relativists or there's some sort of like flexibility to the truth, but it's because of the way language works and the fact that God has to accommodate himself to us, that there's a, a, a variety of ways we can express the truth about God that are faithful to the biblical testimony and faithful to the history of the church and what the church has um, articulated as the biblical understanding of who God is in these arenas. That's well said. Right on. I love this already. So let's yeah. get after some Sabellianism or what would this what are some other names that you've heard from this? Because my favorite is now these are these are related, but modalistic monarchianism is probably yeah. some of my favorites alliteration in heresy land. Yeah, modalistic monarchianism. Monarchianism is just a good word. It is a great word. What's what's cool is monarchianism is really like just another way to say like monotheism. Right, like single rule. Yeah. So when you say modalistic monarch monarchialism, monarchialism. You got that? Oh man. Um all you're saying is like modalistic theism. Right. And so modalism is another word for this. And and it comes from the idea that God in the, the Trinity is God revealing himself or presenting himself to the world in three ways or modes. So, um, you know, the classic Orthodox uh, understanding of the Trinity is that God um, is three persons. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God. There's no other God besides the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three, to quote the Westminster Confession, these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Um, Yet they are not each other. And so that's where modalism kind of falls off the road, so to say, is it it collapses the persons, plural, into a single person, singular, who presents himself to the world traditionally in three kind of consecutive ways. So kind of one way and then you know the father comes in the Old Testament and then sort of recedes and the son comes and recedes and then the spirit comes and sort of recedes. Right. But modalism um, can kind of present itself in a variety of ways. So the most famous kind of modern modalistic um, group is the oneness Pentecostals. And the oneness Pentecostals will say, well, God is God. So God could present his three faces to us in multiple ways at the same time. So that's how they kind of get around like the, um, like the baptism, for example, they're going to say like, well, God is able to sort of appear as these three modes at one time because he's God. But the classic doctrine of the Trinity 
requires us to make distinctions without separation between the three persons. Right. Right on. And some people would argue when this kind of gets into why Sabellianism developed to begin with that there's been like a Trinitarian theological development so that over time, the New Testament was really not, and the New and Old Testament was really not meant to convey that there was such a thing as a Trinity, but that's really the invention of theological scholars, like ex post facto. But I think, I'm guessing you would agree with me on this, that, I mean, the New Testament is a fully Trinitarian document. It's not like the culmination of some kind of process of slow growth and reflection on the part of theologians. Oh, yeah. And so with this heresy and others like it, I think it comes down to their problems arise when we there when their attempts made to explain rather than just communicate the deity of Christ to those outside the church. Yeah. And so being that Sabellianism teaches that a unipersonal God reveals himself in like you said these three modes or manifestations, I think that's a common yeah. term I've used, I've heard for this kind of understanding. So that like you said he's, he's successively it's a hard word to say. <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Where Orthodox Trinitarians have spoken of one substance and three persons. Here we've got the modalist saying one substance, three modes. Right. So I think anybody who's attempted to explain to a child, for instance, or anybody else for that matter, what the Trinity is, realizes that at some point you get defeated by every explanation. And what you just need to do is communicate that this is the truth. That's a different reality outside ourselves. But Sabellianism kind of got stuck there and basically said, well, this comports to our understanding of the world in which we live and how we think. And so therefore, we're going to superimpose this on top of who God is. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what we have to recognize um, about the New Testament is that the the doctrine of the Trinity arises in the church before the New Testament was written. So, right. so the doctrine of the Trinity arises because of the experience of the apostles with God the Father, who they knew as the God of the Old Testament, then now God the Son incarnate in their midst, and then God the Spirit indwelling them after Pentecost. And so this this experience that the apostles had and that the, the church had, I mean, it, it's kind of um, sort of crystallized and focused in the experience of the apostles since we, we understand they had a unique experience with Christ and a, a sort of unique direct experience with the Holy Spirit that not all Christians have or not all Christians subjectively have, I should say, um, they were forced to wrestle with this. And so by the time we have the New Testament documents, we have a Trinitarian religion. So the, the idea that we can look into the Bible, into the New Testament, and see theology develop over time, that's true. We can see that. We can see it, especially in the Old Testament, when we're dealing with documents over the course of a thousand years. Um, But in the New Testament, to to greater or lesser degree, we see that as well. But we have to be careful not to fall into the trap to think that the the Trinity and the hypostatic union are documents that we see development in. We don't see the development in that because right. those are those are established doctrines at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Now, it's true, like there has to be some clarified articulation, but it's not the case that like Peter one day was like, you know, I think I really better figure out how this incarnation thing works. Right? <laughs> that was revealed to him by the right. Father in right. Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the same with Paul and the others there. There may have been a clarification that we can trace through the through the New Testament as far as this, how they speak about that. But so much of that has to be speculative anyways that it, it almost doesn't make sense to do that. Exactly. And that some of that clarification, I think, comes from the first century church 
asking the essential question, what do you think of Christ? Right. And so where this divergence, I think, occurs is the Sabellians have this basically erroneous interpretation of biblical text. So I've seen typically looking at something like there's only one God as stated in the Shema in, De- in Deuteronomy 6, and we would agree with that. Right. And then a second text would be, well, Jesus Christ is God. He is God with us. God was manifested in the, fre- in the flesh, like in First Timothy. But here's what's so crazy to me. Like you can, there's a presupposition layered before the interpretation of those verses that says basically that God is Unitarian. So here's what's wild to me. I, I can't, I can wrap my brain around the fact that somebody would say this, but not that this could be believable based on a full understanding of the, the entire scriptures. So after the ascension, according to Sibelius, who we, I guess we can talk about who that dude is, though we don't, don't know much about him. Sure. But he, he's saying there's one divine person came to the church as the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and it is as the Holy Spirit that he reveals himself today. And the time will eventually come when that mode of revelation is totally unnecessary and God will return to just being God as he was to begin with, without any other name. Right. And so that to me seems like just a blatant, erroneous interpretation of almost all biblical texts, but especially the ones where, where they basically kind of puck out Jesus associating himself with God without differentiation or distinction. Yeah, and I think I think that this is part of the reason why it's so important for us to understand and sort of check our presuppositions. Because a lot of the heresies in the early church start out because someone has what may have been a reasonable presupposition, but is unwilling to um, allow their presuppositions to be challenged. So right. uh, Sibelius, for example, had this presupposition that God was unipersonal, that the, the, the unipersonal God of the Old Testament could not be other than unipersonal. To be other than unipersonal would be uh, tritheistic, meaning three gods. And so rather than allow the the experience of the apostles, which is communicated to us through the scriptures, to reshape and reinform that presupposition, he was forced to distort the biblical text in order to make his presupposition still be viable. So the way he does that is by saying, well, no, God isn't three persons. God is just one person in three ways because God is unipersonal, you know. So he's stuck on that presupposition that he has to he has to maintain in order to keep himself within his own frame of reference. Right. There's definitely a huge assumption there because when he goes or a modalist goes and looks at like John 10, John 14, which are the passages about Jesus saying, I and the Father and the Father are one, and he has has seen me, has seen the Father. I mean, those could be read as saying that the Father and the Son are the same person in different modes, but that is right. only possible when they are being read in isolation, totally out of context and apart from the fullness of biblical revelation. Right. So you're right. You have to keep inserting that. It's almost like you have to keep bringing the hammer in where everything looks like a nail because you've just assumed that that's the only tool that you have. Right. And so this is like a super dangerous thing. And what's weird is there's not, as far as I understand it, we don't know like a lot about this dude, right? Except that he was kind of a Libyan origin, I think. And he's active in Rome in like, I don't know, like 198, something like that. Do you have more history? Yeah. I I don't think that we actually do know much about him. We know that he was in Rome. Um, I believe that he was in some sort of ecclesiastical office. Um, I don't know much about his origin. I hadn't heard the Libyan aspect of it. Um, but he really is sort of one of those people that sort of rocks the boat of the church. 
Um, there's there's a lot going on, but it's not as though he's the only person saying this. So I think sometimes what happens when we have sort of these named heresies that are named after a figure is we assume that like there was this one guy who was just causing problems. We just, right. As long as we take care of that one guy, then we take care of the issue. But in, in the 200s, um, there was a modalistic monarchian named Noetus, Praxeus, who Tertullian writes extensively against, Epigognus. Epigonus. It's hard to say some of these Latin names. And then Sibelius, of course. So there's four major figures in the early church that are driving this heresy. And it's not just Sibelius that people react to. But because Sibelius was kind of the the main loudest figure, um, he probably put forward the strongest arguments. He's the one that it gets named after. Um, But I think in a lot of cases when we can, for our own purposes, it's more effective and, and probably more prudent for us to depersonalize, no pun intended since we're talking about the Trinity, to depersonalize these heresies a little bit. So I prefer to call it modalism instead. It's more descriptive. It, it ties right. it less to a specific person. Um, that's kind of a tangent, though. It's sort of a side point. But still, he had a sweet name. Like, nobody's going to name something Jessianism because it just doesn't sound cool. Yeah, I don't know what... I mean, even like Thomas, they have had to call it Thomism. Yeah, that's true. But that's kind of lame, right? It is a little lame. Yeah, I mean, Sibelian is just a sweet name. Yeah, I mean, I think the root error of the modalist way of thinking is the insistence that the divine nature must be basically comprehensible to people like you and me. So, right. yeah. again, this idea that there's a difference between explaining and communicating. And so some of this may even have been well-intentioned. I think there was like an overreaction to the Gnostic insistence on the complete otherness of God, you know, that God could not be known in any way whatsoever. So here come people who are modalists but don't know it yet, and they basically say, well, the modalists end with God is completely comprehensible by man. And the thing about that is it actually kind of kills God in a way. Have you have you ever heard yeah. that old, I think it was like an old French proverb, the God who is understood as the God who is dead. Have you ever heard that? I haven't, but I, I, I've heard it represented in a variety of ways. It's kind of a common so I, thought in theology that like yeah, exactly. if if God could be understood then he's either he's not God anymore. He couldn't be right. God if he could be understood. And there's nothing in my mind very mysterious about Sabellian deity. It's quite unlike right. the God of the Bible, I think, because what we're saying is then, well, his thoughts are as our thoughts and his ways are like our ways. And so we don't even need the Bible to tell us what he's like since he's basically right. like us. And so I think there is a lot of room in there where even in our modern thinking whether it's on this Point or others, we do tend to go into that default mindset. Like it must be like me, even if we're not making that statement consciously. That's the way in which we frame our understanding. That's the rubric in which we approach ideas, receive them, and then put them back together in our mind. Right. Yeah. We use ourselves kind of as the pattern and, and sort of our base of experience. And that's one of the things that is is sort of counterintuitive about Sibelianism, though, is that it is it is an attempt to sort of bring God down to the creaturely level. Right. One of the confusing and mysterious aspects of the Trinity is that in creatures, one nature equals one person. But in God, somehow one nature can be three persons and no more and no less. Right. So so we don't understand exactly how or why that is. So Sibelianism is an attempt to sort of say, well, like, no, we got to preserve that one nature, one creature, one one person thing. But a weird unintended side effect of Sibelianism, though, is that we never actually do know God right. because God presents himself 
with these faces, these personae, these these masks, and they draw from the language of the Greek drama. And a lot of times what you would have in a Greek comedy, particularly a comedy, and what, part of what was funny about it, is that the the same actor who's playing the villain is the same actor who's playing the hero. And so the the actor would come out with a mask, you know, you know that you see the the drama, the sad and happy mask for like the Oscars or like Screen Actors Guild. Those are the Greek uh, comedy masks. And so the actor would put on one mask and he would come out and deliver a line and then he'd run behind the stage and grab another mask and come back out with a different mask on. And that was part of the sort of like inside joke of the play was that everybody knew it was the same actor. So it was a little funny that he was playing these different parts. But the problem with that is that you don't see the actor. And so in Sibelianism or modalism, we have this this situation where God presents himself as father, but that doesn't tell us anything about God. It just tells us about how God is presenting himself. And then he presents himself as son, but that doesn't tell us anything about God. It tells us about how he presents himself. And so we have this repeated presentation, but we never actually know or see God, which is also contrary to Jesus's statements that, if you've seen the hymn, they've seen you've seen the Father, you've seen God, and we know God by knowing the Son. So, you know, Sibelians, uh, Oneness Pentecostals will often take that and say, like, well, yeah, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, therefore, one person. Right. But what Jesus is saying is, is that I am such a revelation of the Father that you can know me, and by knowing me, you can know the Father. But in Sibelianism and Oneness Pentecostalism, you can't ever know God. Because God is just wearing these masks, and we can never know for sure that what we're seeing is not just a different mask. Right. So we should probably then talk a little bit about where we see Sibelianism in the modern context, and the oneness movement is a good example. I think that the attraction of Sibelianism was that it provided a really readily understood model of the Godhead. So, I mean, anybody who's thought about the Trinity for long enough has realized it just makes your mind do a somersault. At some point, you have to acquiesce, if only by way of intellectual assent that it's otherworldly in the sense that it's just outside your realm, like you already said. We, we have right. to like break the definitions that we know, and in breaking them, we struggle with that because we can't understand them anymore. And so, to me, the most influential form of modalism today is that that's associated with the oneness or Jesus only, I think, Pentecostal right. churches. Yeah. And the largest is the United Pentecostal Church. So this is alive right. and well. It's not like sometimes we hear about heresies and we think because they happened long ago, they're just dead. Like we're smarter now or something. Yeah. And they're just like arcane and outmooded. But they're definitely alive and well. So have you run into anybody who's kind of got a strong modalist framework that would say it's like really out there with it, like really forward with it? Yeah, I've never had any direct uh, interactions with the oneness crowd. Um, James White has done a lot of good debates uh, with uh some of the Philippine islands oneness crowds that um, are even crazier than what we see out of our homegrown oneness people. Um, but like TD Jakes um, is kind of your classic example. Yeah, right? sure. He, his church is a modalistic church. And even though it appears that he has, he has moved towards orthodoxy a little bit, he is still well within the oneness movement, both organizationally and theologically. When he, when he talks about, God, he clearly is speaking in those oneness terms. And now everybody knows and has had an experience where they or their pastor has sort of slipped up when they're praying and forgot 
which right. person of the Trinity they were addressing. That's that's not what we're talking about. Like if your pastor ends his prayer, he starts his prayer by saying, Dear Father, and then somewhere in the midst of his prayer, he says, Thank you for dying on the cross and thank you for living in my heart. And then he says, In your name, amen. He's probably not a modalist. It's very easy to sort of get twisted up when you're doing things publicly. So, but T.D. Jakes is in a whole different category, right? I know we want to sort of like paint heresy as though it's like a bunch of bumbling idiots, but in reality, most heretics are very well-spoken. They're very yeah, articulate sure. and they're very well-read. And T.D. Jakes is a smart, smart guy. And he's very articulate. He's one of the best public speakers that I've ever heard. And that's part of what makes him dangerous. But he still is squarely within that uh, oneness camp. And not only are there groups like him who would formerly be Sibelian in their doctrine of God, but there are, I would say, even conservative Christians who from time to time slip into a na- naive form of Sabellianism. So we might insist on the deity of Christ, but we're really not good at formulating a meaningful doctrine of the Trinity. And that's why right. it's so important to be able to communicate, to be thoughtful about these things and how to process and metabolize them so that you can communicate them well. And I totally agree with your statement about praying, which we've talked about at length on this podcast right. already. But sometimes Christians begin in prayer by addressing the Father. And then, like you said, classically, they thank him for dying on the cross. And yeah. we're not saying that such people are actually modalists, but the language clearly suggests confusion on our part. And so by trying to rein in and be cognizant of to whom we are speaking, that is really good for our theology. It's really good for us to, to better know God because we are mindful of to whom we're speaking and whom we're making our requests. So that's like a small thing. But that happens a lot, actually. I think there's just, and that's, people aren't trying to be heretical. They just don't know how to pray. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other aspect of that is there are a lot of evangelical and even Reformed Christians that I encounter who just simply do not understand the Trinity. And and obviously, like, there's a blanket statement that none of us on one level understand the Trinity. Of course. The Trinity is incomprehensible, but do not understand the history of our theology, do not understand the classic formulations of the Trinity. And because of that, if if you get the Trinity wrong, because because you don't understand, almost especially if, if it's because you don't understand it, or you haven't done the work to study it, you're going to fall into one ditch or another. You're going to fall into too much diversity or too much distinction in the Godhead or too much unity. Um, and Western Christians as a whole have a tendency to fall into the too much unity camp. So your average evangelical off the street, if you were to ask them to explain the Trinity, they're going to come up with things like, well, you know, like I'm a brother and a father and a son all at the same time. Right. Well, what is that? That's one person expressed in three roles or modes. That's that's modalism. And so I think that's where I see it almost it's it's a naive modalism is a good way to describe it not naive in any sort of pejorative sense but naive in the sense that you just don't you just haven't progressed in your study right. enough to know to know better and right. so people um people with good intentions knowing that there's only one god and knowing that we have to preserve the unity and i think sometimes reacting to overcorrections where we distinguish the the, the diversity too much they emphasize this unity to an unhealthy extreme. That's, I think, well said. I mean, I, I take that point because I think hopefully it's incumbent upon our pastors and our teachers, especially in the Lord's Day worship when we're gathered together, to model 
that kind of appropriate theological understanding. Yeah. So many, I mean, so much of teaching is through prayer, through hearing people pray, for instance, and of course, through the expounding of the scriptures. So I think that in some respects, we each have our own role to play in being responsible to understand these truths. At the same time, we should also be going before good teaching so that we're being instructed in the right way to think about these things. And I think what's really hard, at least it was for me, is to be able to say, no more metaphors. Like, we're just right. not even going to go there anymore, that they're not helpful. And I think that can sound really draconian. Yeah. As if what we're saying is, you can't use any kind of helpful analogy to explain who God is or what he's like. But at the end of the day, it's almost far better to not even go down that path or start in that direction than just to say, let me tell you what the Bible says yeah. about who God is. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right, is that we have to stick close to the biblical text. And I've been criticized in the past. Uh, I've really? Been call, I've been called a tritheist in the past, which is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> Confessions been, of Tony. I've been criticized in the past for speaking too, too heavily on the diversity side of things. And I'll admit that there was a time that I was kind of like cage staging on this. And I did emphasize the distinction between the persons to maybe a little bit of an unhealthy level. But when we look at the language of the New Testament, we don't ever see, I shouldn't say ever, we very rarely see the word God referring to something other than a specific person of the Trinity. Most often it's the Father. But the, the, this sort of like... Um, so some Reformed theologians talk about speaking of God essentially, or God acting essentially. And as far as I can tell, what they mean is that when God, when the persons of the Trinity act in creation in a unified manner, they always act in a unified manner, but when they act in such a way where they don't reveal a specific person upon whom the work terminates, right? So we, we can properly say that creation is an act that terminates on the Father, that doesn't mean the Son or the Spirit were not involved, but the, the primary agent of creation, the one that the Bible points to as the actor in creation is the Father. Redemption is the Son. Sanctification is the Spirit, right? We see these different instances. Well, there are also instances in the Bible where it's not clear that the act is terminating on a particular person. Right. And in those instances, some Reformed theologians will speak of God acting essentially. I don't think that's a good way to speak of it, but what they're saying, though, is that the persons are so unified that we see them as one and they act as one in a way that is so radical that it's proper to speak of them in singular terms. So it yes. would be strange, although not inaccurate, to say they created the universe. The Father, Son, and right. the Spirit, they created the universe. It's not inaccurate, but it's sort of a strange way of speaking because we sort of instinctively recognize that the unity of the persons is so deep and so um, unified that it almost is almost inaccurate to use plural pronouns. Now, it's not, right? but we recognize instinctively that there's, there's a deeper unity than that. There's a deeper unity between you and I making a podcast, right? We are making a oh, podcast yeah. together. It's one, it's... In, I mean, there's different theories of act, but it's basically one act that we're engaging together. Right. But it would still be wrong for, for someone to say, yeah, Jesse and Tony, he made the podcast. Unless right. they were talking about Jesse or Tony, but it, it would be weird. But So we have to say they. But the Father, Son, and Spirit are unified to an extent that goes beyond the unity that we have as creatures working towards a common goal. 
And there's that limitation again of both language and understanding. So we read Genesis 1 and we read, let us make man. And we say, okay, we're just going to have to try to fit that round peg into our square hole. Yep. And if we take that too far, we're liable to fall off the road. So back to the metaphor in the beginning, which I think is a good one. I think what you're basically saying is you're on that path. And at, at certain points in time, we emphasize one, either the, the diversity or the unity. And as long as we don't influence or exacerbate one to the exclusion of the other, I think we stay on the path Yeah, as well as we're well-intentioned there. But <clears throat> the minute that we start excluding one at the expense of the other, then we're starting to fall into the ditch. And that's a real problem. So I think we should talk about then where you and I see in the scriptures kind of a refutation of the Sibelian hypothesis about, you know, how God is these. I like what you said about the three masks and putting on these three different masks as if he's d- displaying himself or manifesting in a different show or different showcase. And for me, where this starts, I think you mentioned it already, was I, I always wonder how does the Sibelian deal with the prayers of Jesus where they enact yeah. or just like a pretense? I mean, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... One of the things that I found is common, you know, like I said, I don't have a lot of extensive interactions with um, the oneness crowd, but one of the things that's common with all heresies, but especially the oneness crowd is sort of a, um, almost like a, a rejection of the Bible at a certain point. Right. So, so they, they look at something that is on the face of it clear that there is a dialogue happening between two persons, right? Jesus is not talking to himself. He's talking to the father. He, you know, when he raises Lazarus, he says, Father, I know that you always hear me, right? Well, unless we're wanting to say that Jesus was like crazy, right. it's, it's insanity for someone to say, self, I know you always hear me. So what, what tends to happen is they use, they take those texts and they minimize them and they kind of push them to the side. They sort of wave their hands at them like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't want to deal with that. And then they, they have like their one verse or their two verses that they go to. Well, look, Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But they ignore the rest of the scriptures. So I think that the the prayers of Christ, the baptism account, um, really anywhere that that is is a narrative account of the, the persons of the Trinity interacting with each other. Um, the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, is a great right. place to go. Right. So then check my reasoning on this, because this this is how I would understand it. So basically, I've heard or read that they answer this question. I'm always going to answer this question, especially about communication between Jesus and the Father, as here you have human Jesus praying to the divine nature, but then the idea of the identity of the Father and the Son, we have to abandon that. And they're going to be left with two separate as well as distinct persons, a man and God, cooperating which is, of course, to completely abandon any meaningful sense of the deity of Christ, and then right. to leave us with a man who cooperated with God, who in some sense indwelt him. Yeah. <laughs> it, it gets really crazy because you have to superimpose and over-explain what's plain in the text, right? Yeah, and what's interesting is that the, the oneness crowd are modalists until it's inconvenient and then they sort of become all of a sudden become dynamic monarchians, which basically is that there's one God and then God adopts Jesus and makes him God. But then for the, the oneness folks, Jesus never actually becomes God. And he just sort of, he just sort of dissolves away. Like he, he's sort of like used by God as like an instrument. And then once God is done with Jesus, then Jesus dies and, and, you know, dies and dissolves like every other human. So it, they do, they, they, there's a certain level of schizophrenia 
when you're dealing with heresy. And I don't want to get on like a let's bash William Lane Craig kick, although I'm always on a let's bash William Lane Craig kick, apparently. (laughs) Um, How is this different? I have actually gone through and identified that William Lane Craig rejects outright significant elements of all six of the first ecumenical councils. Wow. And so he, at one point, affirms a sort of radical Unitarianism in which the, there's only one instance of the divine nature. There's only one, one complete uh, instance of the divine nature in all of existence, and that's the Trinity. So a radical Unitarianism in which that's the only thing. But then because he has to then account for the persons, he also somehow has divided the persons so much that they're only parts of the, trin- of the, of the Godhead. They're components of God, and so they're not really unified to each other except as a part-whole relationship. Well, that's functional tritheism. Right. On one hand, he wants to affirm that Christ is fully human, but then on another hand, he wants to affirm that, well, Christ lacks a human soul. So there's this schizophrenic nature that happens once you depart from the, the protective boundaries that the church has given us in the creeds. And that's really what happens is the heretic, um, and I, I use that term in reference to William Lane Craig on purpose, the heretic has uh, stepped outside of these protective boundaries, and now they're, they're all over the place. They're everywhere. Right, they're bouncing exactly. all over the place, and they have no way to stop themselves. And so the oneness Pentecostals do the same thing. Well, well it's one person in three forms, and then you say, well, why do they talk to them? Why is there, they're talking to each other? Well, it's, you know, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just being used by God. He was just right, cooperating with God. So, like, right. they have to sort of, like, jump everywhere. And that orthodoxy, that straight, narrow path of orthodoxy, is the only way to maintain the biblical data without slipping into this sort of schizophrenic nature of heresy. So it's really important that we land right on that road and we allow the the Bible and the the interpretation given to us in the historic creeds and confessions to keep us on the straight and narrow. Right? Jesus uses that analogy on purpose that the faith is a straight and narrow and so, you know, he wasn't necessarily talking about doctrinal teaching, but it, it bears out that we have, to, right, we have to keep ourselves in the faith. And God has provided the testimony of the church for us to use to do that. This proves that point, that orthodoxy comes first. Exactly. And heresy after. I think that's basically what we're trying to get after here. That I guess you're right. Like the logical outworking of in the face of this plain language is you have to basically go against the councils at some point. Like you're left with no other mm-hmm. option if you're going to say, well, the Bible doesn't actually mean what it says it means. So right. not only just with this idea of Jesus praying, but what about like the content of his prayers? So in John seventeen five, when Jesus prays, now father glorify me together with yourself, with the glory, which I had with you, before the world was. So I would imagine that the inexperienced modalist who wants to say that the father and the son are the same person is first faced with just the son praying to the father, like we already said. But the sophisticated Sibelian finds himself faced with the human person whom he believes came into existence in time, talking about the glory which he had before the world was, when the Sibelian does not believe he existed before the world was. So you have to do some like serious gymnastics to exegete this chapter, right? Yeah, and and I think, um, you know, I want to be careful because I think sometimes we get this idea that, like, all heretics are, like, people with, like, handlebar mustaches that are trying to tie damsels in distress to railroad tracks, right? 
And they're not all villains, right? Most people who have fallen into heresy have fallen into heresy in a good intentioned attempt to understand who God is. And for a variety of reasons, most of them are not nefarious. They have gotten it wrong and they've stubbornly persisted in that error, right? There's a difference between someone who is doing their best to understand what the scripture has to say, is making use of the ordinary uh, means of grace and get something wrong. That is, that person is not a heretic necessarily. Um, There's another level of person who makes use of the ordinary means of grace, recognizes that they are at odds with the historic understanding of the Bible, and in some cases recognizes that they are at odds with the Bible itself, and just says, whatever, I know better than that. So we we have to draw that distinction between those who are obstinate in the faith and those who are simply mistaken, and that's an important distinction to make. But I think most of these, most of the instances where these people are trying to do these gymnastics is because they're trying to, somewhere along the line, they got a passage of scripture wrong. And so now they're trying to make the rest of scripture consistent with that passage that they got wrong because they affirm that the scripture is not internally incoherent, but they are the ones that are incoherent. And so they're twisting the scripture to try to make it fit with an inaccurate conception of some passage in a different part of the Bible. True. And that's why we wanted to have this conversation is because we can all fall victim to that, getting something wrong and then using that scaffolding, which we built to, again, just layer on top of everything and that, you know, clouds all of our interpretation. I mean, I think that in terms of kind of, as we think about why this is so harmful as kind of a way of closing perhaps this discussion, I mean, I think the cross is probably the greatest weakness of modalists. And yes. you, there's even like a, a divergence there about uh, who we understand was on the cross and who suffered all that stuff. But when I think about Hebrews 9.14, which reads, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So to the modalist, that's all impossible language. But right. it is the language, the plain language of the scriptures. And so why I think this is so damaging is all attempts to explain the cross in terms of a, st- a distinction between a divine father indwelling a human son end by reducing the cross to the death of merely a human person and not the self-offering of the Lord of glory right? That, that pays for the sins of all those whom he has destined to save. So there's a lot of danger in here that if you just tease that thread of modalism out, you're going to end up here. You right. have to. Yeah. Yeah. And the sad, the sad fact about these heresies, right? We're going to be using heresy in a sort of restrictive sense. There are some people who would say that any sort of significant error in theology is a heresy. But we're going to be using the term heresy in a more restrictive sense that heresy is something that if persisted in and obstinately believed makes you not a Christian. It's that significant of a departure from the faith once delivered to the saints that you are now outside of that faith once delivered to the saints. So complementarianism, egalitarianism, yeah, they're wrong. The egalitarians are wrong, but they're Christians who are wrong. Right. Modalists are not Christians who are right. wrong. The distinction. They're, they're unbelievers, right? They believe in a substantively different God. So I, I, I forgot where I was going with all of that. But the, the well, point well, it is was great. that this is a serious, serious 
uh, issue because we're talking about people who are lost, right? Right. So we're talking about people who have either been deceived so much or have distorted the scriptures so much that they have now made themselves um, made themselves not to be Christians. Now, of course, obviously in God's providence, God doesn't lose people. So these people who have departed from us, we know that they were never of us because if they were of us, they would have remained among us. But we have to, we have to take this seriously. And for anybody that's thinking as we talk, as I've thought in my past, how do I even know then that I haven't committed some heresy of that serious significance that you just spoke about? I know this is beating a dead horse, but that is a great use for the confessions to right. go and to read what is the historic confessions of the church as understood in the scriptures. Cause there's a lot of data in the scriptures. Right. So if you're like me, I used to be worried, well, how do I know that there's not some point on which I've really gone off the road? That's a good way to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And, right. you know, as I see it here, one of the horrible things about civilianism is just how much it does strip away God's character by trying to make it completely understandable to us. And it totally annihilates the beauty of his person. And one of those small things, a small example, I guess, would be just that we understand and say almost in a cliche manner that God is love. Right. And what we're basically saying when we unpack that is in the Trinity, there is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. But if you take that way by way of Sabellianism, all that is gone. How can God be love if he's just a single entity manifesting himself with masks? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, John Owen's um, communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is just, it's phenomenal in this. So I would just encourage all of our readers to pick that up. It's not short, but it's also not super long. And in the grand scheme of John Owen's writings, it's it's pretty approachable. Um, but he he goes through and demonstrates that... We have communion with the Father as the Father. We have communion with the Son as the Son. We have communion with the Spirit as the Spirit. It's not this sort of um, communion with God that is depersonalized because it's not communion with any one person of the Trinity. Exactly. We have it, we we not only have communion with the persons of the Trinity. We have communion with all of the persons of Trin- the Trinity as the persons of the Trinity. Um, and I think sometimes that's something that we lose. And that's something that this sort of modalistic impulse that's really prominent in Western Christianity and then flat out modalism really misses out on is that I have the ability and the privilege to pray to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ through the one Lord Jesus Christ and by the one Lord, the Holy Spirit. And that is a, that is a blessing that we, we give up if we suddenly somehow depersonalize these persons such that we're praying to some sort of nameless, faceless God, quote unquote, that is so um, amorphous that we're just praying to some sort of divine substance. That's not the faith of the Bible. That's not Christian faith. Right. And that's why we're taking such a hard stance on it, because there is a lot of distinctives here that aren't just about interpretation or opinion. This is about upholding the the scriptures as they're given to us. But you know, God himself is the center of all things. So getting this wrong is getting everything wrong. Yeah, so exactly. This is a good place to kind of think about, even in our small habits, like we said, whether it's in prayer, how we think about God, how we read the scriptures, to understand that unity and diversity in the Trinity and to respect that it is present in both ways. And again, for me, one of the best ways to do that, to get that top of mind, was to be really particular 
about how I prayed. And I know that that can come across as work and it can seem like a little staged, but I think that's a really worthwhile exercise. When you pray in your personal closet or when you play, especially when you pray out loud, yeah. you're know, leading people in prayer, to be really thoughtful about how you go about doing that and in whom you're addressing. Because it's, like we talked about before, it's not wrong to pray to the Trinity, to the persons of the Trinity, but it says something about our, our theological wherewithal and rigor when we pray and interact with the different persons of the Trinity in ways that are appropriate and biblical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this is great stuff. I'm looking forward to the kind of an ongoing, wait, is that weird to say? I'm looking forward to ongoing conversations about heresy. (laughs) It might be a little weird, but I'm excited too. Heresy cast. So yes, as usual, we're going to do a question cast every month. So if this has triggered a question or you just, I don't know, want to know where Tony buys his razors or some other question <laughs> that's really on your mind, give us a call. Leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. The answer is Harry's. I get Harry's razors. <laughs> we should get a sponsorship. They do sponsorships for podcasts. Why aren't we getting a sponsorship from Harry's? I don't know. Probably because, well, is like the razor the anti-reformed like theological instrument because we just talk about beards being reflective. Yeah, but you got to trim your beard. I guess the, that's the, true. The razor blade that you shave your beard with is like the word of God that trims your systematic theology. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, the word of God is like a five blade razor. Yes. Smooth. Trimming your beard to immaculate perfection. Yes. You have to be careful or you'll cut yourself. <laughs> All right, I, I think we've derailed enough. I think so. We're here all week. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. Yes, and just a reminder, we do prioritize voicemails over emails. So we will try to get to your emails, but if you really want your question answered on a question cast, call us and leave a voicemail. We love to hear your voices. Yes, we've got some great ones queued up for this, this coming episode in a couple weeks here, so I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, you are not going to want to miss that. No. All right, Jesse, thank you for this brilliant idea of the heresy cast. I'm giving you all the credit. Wait, 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 I was going to say, wait a second. I just got all the credit for bringing up heresies. It's all good. This was a great idea. I'm excited to do it. I think it's going to be fruitful. And um, I'm just stoked. I'm stoked to like dig into church history. I'm a church history guy. I know. don't do it enough. So I'm really excited. I know that's your jam, but I'm also thinking again, like how many times do you get together with people or in like, churchy conversation just say why don't we just talk about some heresies that have existed so that we just don't do that stuff yeah it's so funny story i i um so our dad is out of town on vacation he's visiting our brother and so i preached this morning and then i went and he teaches this like bible study at the college uh for uh like a group of students and i went and i taught and i did like a lesson on like the canon the development of canon and text criticism like an apologetics lesson and it was just like blank faces it's like totally <laughs> blank faces just oil painting yeah and and i've learned that like that's just that group like they, right. they they're not very responsive but it just made me think cuz i was like yeah church history let's talk about the development of the canon and they were like Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I see how that would be useful. Uh, this Blank is faces. our podcast. Yeah. So please, please call us. Leave us voicemails. We love to hear other people's voices. Uh, we love to get those questions on the air and answered. And we people love the question cast. So we're going to keep doing it as long as we have questions to, to do. 
Can't stop, won't stop. All right. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?